We're going to be in Luke chapter 8. Last week, we saw the parable of the soils, each soil representing the different types of hearts to receive God's word. Today, we're going to see more of Jesus' Galilean ministry. We're going to see that all creation obeys him, whether it's the weather or demonic forces. So turn to verse 19. It says, Then his mother and brothers came to him and could not approach him because of the crowd. And it was told to him by someone who said, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered and said to them, My mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. Now, it doesn't appear from the parallel scriptures that his mom and his brothers came by to see and hear Jesus' teachings like the rest of the crowd. As a matter of fact, Mark 3.21 says... But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, meaning Jesus, for they said he is out of his mind. And John 7, 3 through 5 says this. His brothers therefore said to him, depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for even his brothers did not believe in him. Jesus said that a prophet is without honor in his own country. And, you know, many of you have experienced that. No matter what, you you receive the Lord Jesus as your Savior. Yeah, you made some mistakes in the past. You've turned your life around. You're a good testimony. You're a good example. And people still who knew you from when you were younger, they just don't buy it. They're not going to buy it from you. But Jesus never sinned, but they wouldn't buy the whole Messiah thing. You know, sometimes familiarity breeds contempt, that that, um, phrase. Imagine growing up with Jesus. Now, let me just set the stage here. Jesus is the oldest brother. He's the oldest of all the siblings, obviously. He's from, you know, uh, Mary conceived him through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is born, and then all the other siblings come after him. Now, imagine growing up with Jesus. I'm sure you've heard this before. Jesus probably did very well in school. He probably aced all the tests. You know, when his parents asked him to do the chores, he probably did them without batting an eye. Jesus didn't sin. No doubt his brothers and sisters heard, can't you be like your older brother Jesus? But the problem was not with Jesus. It was with their hearts. Anyone close to him who rejected him, they had to reject him only because of envy. So the Bible says that it's okay if you're being persecuted as being a Christian. Just don't be persecuted as an evildoer. As long as we're doing the right thing, it's just suffice to say that God should be pleased with us and nobody else. So some of you are actually surprised to know that maybe you come from a traditional background that Jesus had brothers and sisters. Well, let's go to Scripture. Matthew 1, if you're taking notes, Matthew 1, 24 through 25. The Bible says that Joseph didn't know his wife in an intimate way that a husband and a wife know each other until the firstborn son, Jesus. And after that, they continued marital relationships. Uh, Acts 1.14 shows that after the the resurrection and after the ascension, his mother and his brothers came together and they they started believing now. Uh, Matthew 13.55 through 58 actually names four of his brothers. Okay? Actually, I'll go go to that. Matthew 13.55 through 58. It said, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude, and his sisters, are they not all with us? 
Where then did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now understand this, Jesus' attitude is not, Ah, they're at the door, mom and my brothers, let them take a number, I'm busy. That wasn't his attitude. He was making a doctrinal point though. What he basically was saying, another expression that we've heard, blood is thicker than water. Jesus was saying blood is not thicker than water. As a matter of fact, Proverbs 17, I'm going to use some scriptures to, to support what I'm saying here. Proverbs 17:17 17, 17 says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Proverbs 18:24. these are just a few. A man who has friends must himself be friendly, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. So... Blood should not be thicker than water. We should not give people because they're biologically related to us. We should not reward bad behavior or give them a pass because they're related to us. Um, The true family is your eternal family. God's family is the family that matters first, Jesus is saying. John 1, 12 through 13, it says, But as many as received him, meaning Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Those who are born again into God's family. Look around. This is your family. Now, obviously, it's a bonus if your dad and your mom and your brothers and your sisters and people close to you are saved, but that's not always the case. And what is the requirement for being in God's family? Hearing God's word and acting upon it. It goes back to the soils. It goes back to the heart. It's a great parable of the soils that we covered last week. So you can't just be a hearer, but you have to be a doer. Now, next, Luke gives us two examples of how all creation obeys Jesus, which really continually builds the case of Christ's deity. So let's go to verse 22. It says, Now it happened on a certain day that he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go over to the other side of the lake. And they launched out. But as they sailed, he fell asleep, and a windstorm came down on the lake. And they were filling with water and were in jeopardy. And when they came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water. And they ceased, and there was a calm. But he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid and marveled, saying to one another, Who can this be? For he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. So we spoke before about the Sea of Galilee. And again, those of you who are from the area, I've kind of covered this once before. If you take all of South Brunswick, which is about 42 square miles, and you take all of Franklin Township, which has a different shape, but the square square mileage is very close, and you put those two townships together, which are very big, that's about the size of the Sea of Galilee. So it was a freshwater lake, but it was tremendous. So it's 13 miles by 7 miles, 690 feet below sea level, and 150 feet deep. So you could certainly drown in the Sea of Galilee. Some of the famous shore towns were Magdala, Capernaum, Tiberias, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Gergesa. And you've heard some of those names. Even Cana and Nazareth, which you've also heard, are within 10 miles of the shores. So Jesus and his disciples, going back and forth to these shore towns, they can make short work of this going across the lake. 
just to set the stage there. Verse 23, you have this storm that comes up. Now, between temperature changes, pressure changes, and great differences in height between the mountains and the Sea of Galilee, even today the Sea of Galilee has incredible storms. And some recorded waves, people have uh, witnessed waves over 20 feet high on this normally serene lake. So these storms can be cooked up in a heartbeat. Now you have, it must have been real bad because you have at least four experienced fishermen if all the disciples went with Jesus on the boat and they can't solve the problem. Reminds me of those, uh, you ever see those, <laughs> it's the new thing, they have these documentaries on the extreme fishing where the people go to like the, the Antarctic and man, it's freezing and the, the waves come over and, you know, and these guys get knocked over and it's like I would be throwing up all over the place. You know, I don't know how these guys do this, but they, you know, they're, it's just amazing. But anyway, um, going back to the story, so what do they do? What do the disciples do when all this is happening? Well, they go to Jesus, right? That's what we should be doing. That's the only place that we can go to find the answers to life's problems. And what do they say? <laughs> Master, we are perishing. You know, uh, so at least they started out good. They went to him, but they basically tried to make a statement that, look, we're going to die. We're dying here. Help us out. Did they think Jesus was going to let them die? And what about us? Are we defeated? You know, we go to Jesus too. But do we come to him defeated? It's like, oh, Lord, you're the last one that I I came to. I spoke to everybody else. And, you know, if there's anything you can do, I, I could use some answers to this prayer. Sometimes we do that. We come to Jesus defeated. It's almost like we come in unbelief that we don't believe he can help us or save us, but he always can. And then like that, the problem is solved. Often God lets us, he allows us to get the end of ourselves, the end of our plans, and the end of our solutions. So when things get better immediately, we can't take credit. I think about Gideon. Remember the story of Gideon? You know, he was a fearful guy and the Lord used him to defeat the Midianites. Well, God said to take an army and go against the Midianites and, you know, fight them. Well, Gideon started out with 32,000 men. And God purposely allowed these different tests, if, if you will, to whittle down the numbers lower and lower and lower until Gideon only had 300 men. And the reason God gave, gave Gideon for doing this was because he said, with 32,000 men, Gideon, if you defeat the Midianites... There's a good chance that you're going to take the glory for yourself, but I don't want that. With 300 men and incredible odds, against incredible odds, if when you take the Midianites and you're victorious, I'm going to get the credit. Never steal God's glory. And I've seen that happen before. I've seen it happen in ministry, and I've seen it happen in ministry, and I've seen it happen in ministry. But never steal God's glory. And I've been there. You know, um, we make that mistake. We start to see something good going on in ministry and we, our human nature takes over our pride and we start to attribute it to ourselves. I've got to tell you, everything that's happened here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields, you know, we've, we've, t- we've taken some hits. A lot of you don't know what I'm talking about, but some of you do. Some spiritual attacks. And I've been attacked with my body, you know, with problems with my neck and, and different issues. And there's been a lot of things that have happened. And you know what? I'm starting to see the light. I think God is kind of telling me without telling me, when something amazing happens here, you can't take the credit for it, and I can't. So it's, it's a good thing. So what do we do when storms come in our lives? What is our solution to still these storms? Do we really trust the Lord? And do we really have ears to hear what he's saying? We covered that last Sunday. Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
And we talked about all the stimuli that comes into our ears during the day, and half of it we don't remember at the end of the day. Uh, Jesus said, do we have ears to hear what God is saying to us? Remember, Jesus told the disciples they were going to get to the other side. So why did they say to him, Master, Master, we are perishing? Jesus was disappointed because they didn't believe that he would get them to the other side, their lack of faith. And in verse 25, it says this, the last line, they said to themselves, to one another, who can this be, meaning Jesus? For he commands even the winds and water, and they obey him. Who can this be that can even command the storms in my life, and they obey? So before I move on to the next section, I want to leave you with a few of these words. Philippians 1, 3 through 6. Philippians 1, 3 through 6 says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, Paul speaking, always in every prayer of mine making requests for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And Romans 8.28 says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Skipping down to 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Take those words for comfort. Now we just saw how Jesus controls the elements of nature that he set in motion at creation. Now we're going to see how even the spiritual entities just another aspect of creation, also obey him. Verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he stepped out on the land, there met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. And he wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and said with a loud voice, What have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had often seized him, and, was, and he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles. And he broke the bonds and was driven by the demons into the wilderness. Jesus asked him, saying, What is your name? And he said, Legion, because many demons had entered him. And they begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. Now a herd of many swine was feeding there on the mountain. And they begged him that he would permit them to enter them, and he permitted them. Then the demons went out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and drowned. When those who fed them saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then they went out to see what had happened and came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had departed sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And they also had seen it told them by what means he, had, he who had been demon-possessed was healed. Then the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the Gadarenes asked him to depart from, there, from them, for they were seized with great fear. And he got into the boat and returned. Now the man from whom the demons had departed begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city, what great things Jesus had done for him. So it was when Jesus returned that the multitude welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. So verse 26, 
he's sailing to Gadara or Gerasa, and it's basically southeast of Capernaum. So it's a straight, straight shot southeast on the sea to Capernaum, um, from Capernaum, southeast of Capernaum, excuse me. It's a few miles short of the Greek area of the, of the Decapolis, which is going to come into play later. The Decapolis basically at the time was sort of an autonomous region of Greek cities. Decapolis in the Greek, Deca meaning ten, uh, so it was a a ten-city region that was kind of autonomous. Okay, it was a Gentile region. So verse 27, you know, they get off the boat and they see this guy. He's got no clothes on. You know, he's demon possessed. So the town welcoming committee basically is a crazy naked man. Probably not really good for tourism, but this is what they're faced with. So, you know. This guy breaks shackles. He's strong enough to demons empower him with such strength that he's able to break shackles. And, you know, he's, he's just has incredible strength. But what's interesting is he threw off, you know, regular shackles. But it's interesting how people, you can make that analogy where people think that they're breaking the shackles of God's instructions. How many people think it's so liberating to just live a life of sin and, you know, we're shackled by God? No more oppression. The Bible was written so long ago, it doesn't apply for our lives. I'm going to break the shackles of God's oppression. Well, this man lived in the tombs and in the wilderness. Was that freedom? He lived among the dead. He was isolated. This, Mark's Gospel said that this man cut himself frequently with stones. He was self-destructive. He wore no clothes. He was humiliated without even realizing it. See, this is what Satan does. He lies and deceives. And then he lies some more and deceives some more. And he keeps weaving a twisted web to get you caught in that web. I think about, um, you know, I'm not going to sit here and lie. People sin all the time. And I'm not going to say from the pulpit, don't sin. You're going to hate it. You know what? It'll feed your flesh. It'll feel good to you for a while. But it has ramifications. Think about adultery. Start, you start messing with that, you might think, hey, this is freedom. I'm starting to enjoy this. If you're married, it'll have ramifications there. If you have kids, it'll have serious ramifications. It's a lie. It's, it's a mirage. You think it looks good, and you get drawn into it, and then you're caught up in it, and then you can't get out. Even, even drugs, you know, drug abuse. People think, well, it's an escape, and I'm not hurting anybody. I'm just doing it by myself. And then you get addicted. And then, you know, a host of things can happen. Um, you know, alcohol is the same thing. It's a lie. It's a mirage. But verse 28, this guy has a legion of demons in him. Okay? The Roman legion, if that's what it's referring to, a Roman legion of men was about 3,000 to 6,000, you know, foot troops. So this guy probably had a lot of demons in him. Now, do they say, hey, it's just Jesus. He's by himself with those 12 disciples, and they're in the background. They're afraid. You know, we outnumber them about a thousand to one. Hey, let's jump them. They don't say that. They beg him not to torture them. This is another stone in the foundation of Christ's deity. He, we saw that he, he could read people's thoughts. He had the power to forgive sins. He had the power over the elements. He had the power to do miracles. This is just one more thing. He has the power over the unclean, over the demonic realm. And interestingly enough, the possessed man says he speaks in I, me, but it's actually the demon speaking through him. So we should kind of make a little turn here. What is a demon? It appears to be, demons appear to be those fallen angels that followed Satan in the rebellion. And you can see that they were cast down to earth. You could see that in Revelation 12, verses 4 and verses 9. 
demons. What can they do? Well, if you look up your, uh, what, what they are in the scripture and, and the scripture references, they can instigate, instigate deceit. Demons can deceptively receive sacrifice, and they're powerful. It's a funny story in Acts 19. It's a very obscure little passage in, in Acts that, if, unless you've really read Acts a few times, you won't find it. Acts 19, there was a man who was demon-possessed, one guy, and this guy, Siva, S-C-E-V-A, he had seven sons, whether they were his actual sons or disciples, as he was a religious leader, not really sure. So these seven sons of, of Siva decide they're going to get this man and they're going to exercise his demon. So they say, uh, this, this Jesus of whom Paul preaches, by his name, come out. And the demons look at him and go, Jesus we know, Paul we also know, but you we don't know. And the dude, the demon-possessed guy, jumps on the seven sons, beats the tar out of them, and he must steal their clothes because they all run away naked. How humiliating. So demons are powerful. I just like that story. Um, <laughs> they're evil. They're numerous. And they're led by Satan. And they can possess the unsaved. Certainly a good reason to get saved. First uh, John 4, 4 says about Christians, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. If you are truly saved, then they can't possess you. And Satan can afflict, but only with God's permission. We saw this in the case of Job. It was temporary, and then God rewarded him after he went through this trial. And Jesus said to Peter, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But Jesus goes to restore Peter after he falls, and after he falls out of faith, after he's afflicted. So there's, there's restoration there. But the underworld is bent on destroying mankind. I think of this interesting fable. It's called the, how many of you have heard the frog and the scorpion? All right, not a lot, so I'll tell it. <laughs> if you all raise your hands, I wouldn't tell it. But basically, the frog and the scorpion is, you have a frog and a scorpion on a, on a little pond. And the scorpion says to the frog, I really need to get across that pond, but I can't swim. Would you help me? And the frog goes, I, I don't really trust you with that stinger. You've got a really nasty habit of stinging people. So the scorpion goes, listen, trust me. Just trust me. I've got to get to the other side. So reluctantly, the frog says, okay, hop on my back. So the frog is making his way across the pond. Three quarters of the way across the pond, the scorpion stings the frog. And the frog looks up at him and goes, now I'm going to die and you're going to drown. But the bottom line, the moral of the story is, it's the same thing with the underworld. They are hell-bent on destruction. They know their destruction is imminent and they are trying to destroy the object of God's affection, which is us. Also, I think about the Terminator movie. Remember one of Arnold's big debuts? And the hero, Kyle, Kyle Reese, says to the woman he's trying to save, he says, it can't be reasoned with. It can't be bargained with. It shows no remorse and has no pity, and it absolutely will not stop until you are dead. And that's true about Satan. You, we can't reason with Satan. We can't bargain with Satan. We can't say, well, I'll sin a little bit, and then will you leave me alone? You've got to go to the foot of the cross because the underworld is hell-bent on destroying you. It's, it's interesting to go through this, all this um, underworld stuff, but we have the power in Jesus Christ where it, they can't harm us. They can't touch our souls. So I think I pretty much hammered the point home about us being the object of God's affection and the demonic realm will lie to us. They'll make sin look like fun and they'll talk us into doing it. And then when we do it, we'll get wrapped up in it. It'll twist us. And then when we're totally useless, they'll leave us high and dry and they'll leave us to our own demise. Verse 30. 
So Jesus asked him, saying, what is your name? And he said, Legion, because many demons had entered him. You know, I want to kind of go through another scripture, Luke 11. Go forward a few chapters. Luke 11, 24 through 26. The antecedent here is that Jesus speaks about uh, Satan and binding Satan, binding the strong man. And he says in verse 24, Jesus says, When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places, seeking rest, and finds none. He says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So, that's a very interesting passages. The demon doesn't leave on his own, though, because when he comes back, he finds it swept and put in order. This is imagery. Because demons don't leave out of mercy. They don't say, oh, we beat the guy up enough, let's go. Again, they're hell-bound on destruction. That's clear from Scripture. Only God is powerful enough to, to make them uncomfortable and to move them out. But I kind of think about a person who's involved in the things of God. They start getting involved. They start coming to church. They start reading the Bible. But the person may choose not to follow that narrow path, ultimately, that leads to everlasting life. They may get back on that wide path. And the result is when the demon returns, he takes more and he won't let go. It's kind of like a battle. When an enemy loses ground in a battle, if you follow World War II or any of these, these wars, enemy loses ground in a certain battle. When they go to reclaim that area, they come with many more forces and they reclaim that area with a vengeance and they don't let go. I want to also switch to another scripture, 2 Peter 2, 20 through 22. It's another interesting kind of obscure scripture. Um, 2 Peter 2, 20 through 22. Now the antecedent here is the false teachers. He says, For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them, the world, and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. Now, again, this false teacher's got embroiled in this, but there's no reason to believe that it's limited to there. I believe that it could happen to anyone, you know, that they keep, you know, getting involved with the things of God, then dabbling with the world and trying to walk that, that separate walk, okay? And then they become re-entangled in the world. Similar passages in Hebrews, uh, the book of uh, chapter number 3 and chapter number 10. But I'm kind of actually do, taking a little side note here with this whole demonic thing in Explaining, we are a Calvary Chapel, and uh, you know we have doctrines just like everybody else, and we try to take doctrines out of the Scripture. That's the only place that we find our doctrines. But you kind of have that whole Arminianism-Calvinism debate. Arminianism, Arminianism is on one extreme, saying that basically it's very easy to lose your salvation. You have to almost keep it up through works and other things. And on the other end is the Calvinistic view that says you know uh, you can't even choose not to accept God. When he swoons you with his grace, you're under his, 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 um, his, his almost like his, his capture, and you can't go away from that. And no matter what you do, that salvation is there for good. Uh, and there's five points to Calvinism. But the Calvary Chapels fall somewhere in the middle. 
We believe in God's sovereignty. God is sovereign. God definitely controls this world. God does, does miracles. You know, God does great things. If you want to be a part of his life and a part of his family, he'll hold you there. But at the same time, the world is a mess. You can't tell me that there's no free will. Men make horrible decisions every day. Probably more of the world is evil than more of the world is good. So would, would God want everybody to come to him? Absolutely. But he won't trample over our free will. So, you know, the Bible also talks about in the concordance, you look up the word seek. God is asking us to use our free will to come to him. He says, the Gentiles will seek me. Seek me while I'll still be found. If you look up seek, you'll get probably like 50 hits on seek and look it up. It's about asking us to use our wills to come towards him. And then when you're saved, he says, abide. Jesus said in John 15, abide, abide. Because if the branch does not abide in the vine, it's no good except to be cut off and to be thrown into the fire. Walk, you know, walk in the spirit. Don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. These are all commands to use our wills. So every once in a while, I want to throw something there about what we believe, because people ask questions. All right. The bottom line is, don't, you know, don't dabble with spiritual things. If God is calling you, take the plunge. If you believe that in your heart you're being stirred up by the word of God, not by me, but by the word of God, respond to that call. So, going back to the the text here, um, verse 31, it says, here, right here, you see the demons begging Jesus. This is a great perspective, because the ones, the spiritual realm, the demonic realm that gives us such a hard time, they're, in a sense, groveling before the Lord, which is kind of empowering. It's nice to see that knowing that we follow the Lord and we're in him and the ones who give us such a hard time have to grovel before them. They don't want to go into the abyss. What's the abyss? Well, it's also known as the bottomless pit. If you're taking notes, Revelation 9 and Revelation 17 speak about the abyss. The one few things they say about it is that it's dark, it's smoke-filled, they're captive there and they can't cause any mischief there. They don't want to go there. So it's probably even a lot worse than... Scripture is uh, at least giving us heads up on that. A few other things we see there's a large number of pigs, the swine that are feeding that the demons go into. Mark's gospel tells us that there were 2,000 pigs. That's a lot of pigs. So because of all the pigs, it's believed that it's a high Gentile area. We get a clue to because you know pork was unclean to the Jews and they wouldn't get a good market there. So. 2,000 pigs, big Gentile area, or it could have been a place where topical medication was produced, like an ointment factory. I wanted to see if you were awake. I couldn't resist. Came up with that one myself, by the way. Okay, 34 through 35. So this guy is, he's taken care of, right? He's, you know, exercised. They give him some clothes, which is good. He's sitting at the feet of Jesus, which is awesome, which is where he belongs. It's a good start. The crowd gathers from the area. It says that they tell this in the city and in the country. So all these people come to see what's going on. And this is the scene, and I like to visualize. You know, um, People come by, there's some water, a whole bunch of dead pigs floating in the water, and the former madman sitting at Jesus' feet with clothes on, saying, I mean, it must have been shocking for them to see that. But what's their response? Not joy? Happiness, this is great, Jesus. Fear, they're afraid. They ask him to depart. Isn't that weird? Sometimes people get so used to sin that they don't know anything else and they can't break free. It's kind of motivated by fear. I think about when my wife started the prison ministry. She would 
go in with other ladies to the prisons and preach the gospel to the incarcerated women. And she would get so excited. She's like, they're listening. This one took a Bible. This one quoted scripture. And uh, the woman who was, who was the leader of it, Janet Martin, tried to say, it's good for your enthusiasm, but don't get too excited. Because what was happening is one girl would get out and she would say, yeah, I'm going to find, they'd find her a church and they'd set her up. And then a few months later, she'd be back in prison. It happened often. But it was, they just couldn't break free. You know, the Lord had freed them, but they couldn't claim that. And it was motivated by fear. It was just such a cycle that they had got used to. They, did, they just kept committing crimes and coming back into the prison. It was very heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking for my wife. Uh, but 37. So after seeing this man healed and he's discontinuing to terrorize the region, Jesus leaves because they asked him to leave. Two things. After we live so long with sin, it enslaves us into dysfunction and it dupes us into believing that removing it is bad. People will hold on to that sin. Jesus, leave. <laughs> I know he was exercised. I know that you know, you're trying to do good here. I know you probably want to do some miracles and tell us about God, but you know what? You disrupted things for us. You've got to go. And Jesus left. Two, Jesus is a gentleman. If you don't want him around, he won't be. Revelation 3, 20 through 21 says this. The sad thing is he's, Jesus is speaking to a church here, so understand the, the setting of it. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me, if anyone opens the door. Jesus is not going to kick the door down with a battering ram. He's, he's going to stay there until you open that door and let him in. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Jesus is a gentleman. Verse 38 and 39 are actually the end of the story here. In Mark's gospel, it tells us that this man who is exercised, now he's in his right mind, uh, he goes to the, the, the Decapolis. He wants to go with Jesus, but Jesus wants him to go to be a testimony to the Gentiles. And that's kind of neat because he, cares about the, he cared about the Gentiles too. The Jewish people got so focused in him being the Messiah or not being the Messiah, and they had a hard time when he was reaching out to other people. Although in the Old Testament, the Bible prophesied in all the prophets that, you know, that the Messiah would come to the Gentiles, that the Gentiles would come into the fold. So he sends this guy as a testimony to the Decapolis to explain to them and to be his witness. It's kind of neat. And Jesus sails back across the lake, the last verse says. So it was when Jesus returned that the multitude welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. So he goes back across the lake. People can't wait to have Jesus back. I could see some of them sitting and maybe eating dinner at, on the beach on the shore, and they see the little boat start to come into their, their view. And like, I wonder if that's Jesus coming back. And as it gets closer, they see Jesus. Lord, you know, we were, we were so excited. We couldn't wait for you to come back. And is that, our, is that our attitude? Are we excited to come before God? When we come to church, are we thinking about uh, all the things we have to do after church? Are some of you daydreaming. I see a lot of you fanning yourselves. Believe me, if you think it's hot there, it's hotter up here. Heat rises. <laughs> but, you know, what is our attitude? In, in third world countries where Christianity is illegal, people walk a whole half day's journey to get to a church that's in the, in the jungle. You know, and they're, it's just brutal conditions. But, you know, we have somewhat climate control. But we should come to church with a good attitude, with a heart to love the Lord 
and to hear his word. Now I'm just going to kind of go off a few topics here, just use this as an opportunity. What about this whole demon possession thing? And this is only conjecture. Why don't we see it today? Or do we? Just conjecture, but do you think that maybe some of the criminally insane might be demon-possessed? Did you ever do a study on serial killers? They enjoy not only killing, but torturing people too. And their confessions are very bizarre. Does anyone doubt that Charles Manson has a demon? You ever hear, listen to Charles Manson's ramblings? He's, he's demonic. He's an evil man. Um, doesn't mean he can't be saved. Uh, and actually, it's interesting to follow David Berkowitz. I've mentioned this before. The son of Sam Killer many decades ago. And the reason why I bring it up again is he's in the news again. Um, obviously, he lived a life of, of crimes and, and horror and terrorized people. Now the guy has said that he's accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior and he's converted. Uh, and actually, there's a, a book that came out that one of his former attorneys wrote. I just saw it in a, the blog on the Internet. And it basically said that he is fighting from, in prison He's fighting to get the proceeds of the book to go to all the victim's family. He has such remorse for what he's done that he'll do anything he can to help the victim's families. Obviously, a lot of them don't want to speak to him, but he wants to still, you know, try to bless them as, as much as he can. His confessions were bizarre, you know, speaking, hearing voices, talking to dogs. Um, but in his testimony post-Christ, he spoke about being under demonic influence. He actually has a tract out. If you read it, he said that he was under the influence of the, of the demonic realm and somebody in there introduced him to Christ and through uh, many sessions, they were able to break that in him. Not with medication, but with, with Jesus Christ. So some of these people exhibit such incredible strength that it takes several cops to bring them down. They, they're incredible strength. And, and how does society keep them under control? Well, we have medicinal technology now. We keep them zombified and drugged up if they're that much of a problem and behind bars. So it brings me to the next subject I want to address, drugs, but to a far lesser extent. Every so often I think it's good to talk about a controversial subject that maybe not be listed in the Bible, but that everybody has questions about and they're afraid to ask. The elephant under the table that nobody wants to talk about is should Christians take psych drugs or not? It's, good, it's a good topic. And it's definitely different than should Christians seek worldly secular counseling. To that I would say definitely no. Because the Bible tells us that we have everything here that pertains to life and godliness. If your foundation is Jesus Christ and you're counseling with somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ, how are you going to rectify the two? So I would say that that's, you know, maybe there would be extreme circumstances on a particular topic, but if it's psychological counseling, I would say no. You should go with biblical counseling. Um, I think the problem unique to American society is we have a fast-paced, stressful life. Right now, again, I'm losing you, some of you today. I could look around from where I'm sitting. Somebody's got their eyes closed. Somebody's looking at the ceiling. Somebody's counting how many cameras are up there. You know, your mind's are just going. You're thinking about what you have to do. Hurry up because I got things to do after church. So, you know, sometimes you can lose people that way. But stress can lead to overload, overload to anxiety, to depression, and a whole host of other problems. Now, I believe that certainly what does and can help is a prescription of prayer, meditating on God's word, relaxation, taking a step back from everything. Um, I had counseled a couple recently that were involved in so many things. They were so stressed. I said, you guys just need to take a step back, get away from everything, you know? Uh, exercise and maybe changing for a better diet. But sometimes that doesn't help. Sometimes you still are afflicted with this problem. So, and you need medication. 
sometimes short-term, sometimes long-term. And I think people in clergy have to be very careful, people in ministry have to be very careful about judging people who take medication. Um, it's not something you should be ashamed of. It doesn't mean you're a bad Christian, and it doesn't mean you're a lack of faith. As a matter of fact, people come to me kind of secretly and say, I'm having anxiety, you know, or I'm depressed. And it's, they don't want anybody to know about it because there's such a societal stigma attached to it. Again, it doesn't mean you're a bad person because you, you have these things. A quick study of the brain neurotransmitter imbalances reveals that serotonin, one of the main brain chemicals, affects depression, anxiety, insomnia, and migraines. Uh, dopamine, a, a lack of dopamine or an imbalance can cause Parkinson's disease, schizophrenia, paranoia, and it affects the pleasure centers. Gamma aminobutyric acid, which is another brain chemical, it re regulates anxiety and calmness, that balance. And norepinephrine, anxiety and fear. And a lot of times, with too much stress, it sets these things off, and they get off kilter. Now, do I think they're overprescribed? Absolutely. Eli Lilly is a multi-billion dollar industry, and that's only one company that puts out these drugs. So there's a balance. And some people are just nasty and mean, and they should be on <laughs> these drugs. <laughs> but I wouldn't say that. <laughs> Not on tape, anyway. Do I think they're overprescribed for kids? Absolutely. We have a nation that doesn't want to put time in with our children anymore. And because we don't put time in and we just want to buy them stuff to get, us out of their, get them out of our hair, we feel guilty when we spank them. So you have a bunch of kids who are ignored and undisciplined. Well, what do you expect from kids? They're going to be batty. You know, they need that discipline and they need that guidance and they need that love. And let me tell you something. Little kids are weird, especially little boys. <laughs> they're weird. They're annoying. They're loud. And they have far too much energy. Now, you guys see my son in church, and he probably looks normal. Well, that's because he doesn't know you. you <laughs> he's, he's wacky when he's home. And my wife is like, I've got to go out for a drive. You just take care of him. Yeah, let him get it out. But, you know, I can't understand why my kid is so weird. And my elder, Art Kiefer, says it's genetics. <laughs> we hide it well, don't we? Or maybe not. But the cool thing is I was preparing this message and, you know, as a new pastor, I'm like, well, this is, I'm breaking new ground here. Let me be real prayerful about it. But the cool thing is I had the message pretty much done. And this Tuesday, me and my assistant pastor went to the East Coast Pastors Conference. And Chuck Smith, who pretty much started the Calvaries, I think the guy's got a lot of wisdom. He's, he's up there in age. Uh, he said it best at the Pastors Conference. He said, men, we're pastors. We're not doctors. We shouldn't tell people that they have to come off meds, and we shouldn't be pushing people to get on meds. It's a case-by-case -case example. We can't paint it with a broad brush. So hopefully, you know, your decision is between you, your Lord in heaven, and your doctor, and hopefully you have a good doctor. I remember when I had panic attacks in 99, I wouldn't be up here right now. I couldn't speak in front of people. It was just weird. It's, something happens to your, your brain, and it just kind of makes you, you know, weird. And I was weird for a while. But I'm still weird, so what am I saying? <laughs> Had nothing to do with the anxiety. But I remember the one doctor I went to, he just wanted to, he triple stacked me. He met me for five minutes and he wrote three prescriptions. And my wife said, hey, he's not a guinea pig. You know, what are you doing to this guy? So it's a case-by-case -case thing and, you know, it, it, it could go either way. But you know what, you've got to be praying about it. And in, in my case, I didn't need the meds. The Lord, after several months, I was okay. But I don't judge people who take them. So 
And I'm going off on a major tangent really out of showing where we've come to in medicinal technology. And we've come to a lot of technology that the Bible, it may be gray or it may be absent. We're not sure about it. So that's why I'm bringing it up. So where does it fit into Scripture? Well, on the one hand, you have, the, again, the extreme. You have the one hand. You have the violent, the criminally insane. They're caged. They're drugged. Now, you think that is because of society's anti-God bias, not considering demon possession? You know, they're acting bizarre. They're killing people. They're torturing. Let's drug them up, put them behind bars. Does anybody ever consider that? Well, they did in David Berkowitz's example. Of course, the secular government didn't, but one of the Christians or some of the Christians in prison. And, you know, some of these, the most vicious criminals have had, in their conversions, have had night and day changes. Does anybody remember Carla Faye Tucker, the famous woman who... uh, Axe murdered two people, and she went to jail in Texas. A few years back, they executed her in Texas. This woman had such an effect in her conversion that the guards fell in love with her. I don't mean romantically, but they just loved her. I mean, she just was such a changed woman. And she went on a talk show or something through satellite or whatever, and she said, I deserve what I did for my crimes. These families need to have justice. I don't want to get out of prison, but I know I'm going to see my Lord and Savior when I'm, after I'm executed. So I tend to think, because she wasn't looking for anything, that it was, it was genuine. And only God knows the heart. So I think it's something a society won't consider, but it's something certainly we, we should consider, demon possession. Is our society so destructive and so polluted and so stressful that we have no choice but at times to look to medicines for to help us out? And I don't have the answers. It's just all, like I said, conjecture. But what I do know is, whether it's our minds, whether it's our bodies, whether it's demonic forces or whether it's storms in our lives, I know who has the answer, and his name is Jesus Christ, because in the end, all creation obeys him. Let's pray.